Hello and welcome to Socialism, the weekly Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. Public confidence in the British government's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic has nosedived. They're split over how and when to bully workers back into unsafe workplaces to restart the capitalists' profit engines, and they're split over how and when to pay off the massive debts incurred by lockdown relief measures. Meanwhile, the Labour Party, under its new pro-capitalist leader Keir Starmer, could hardly be more tame. But the trade unions have a renewed national profile. Tens of thousands are joining and organising to resist the boss's unsafe working conditions. And the turning point seemed to be Boris Johnson's farcical stay alert speech on 10th May, which tried to lift the lockdown and impose new restrictions at the same time. What's behind the chaos at the top? And with the bosses squabbling over how best to make us pay for the pandemic, what would help workers coordinate the most effective political response? This episode of Socialism looks at a political turning point in the coronavirus crisis, the end of national unity. So we're here this episode with Judy Beeson from the Socialist Party's Executive Committee. Hello, Judy. Hi, James. Let's start by just pointing out that there was a lot of ridiculing of Boris Johnson's speech to the country a couple of weeks ago, the one where it wasn't clear. Was he lifting the lockdown? Was he not? Who was he trying to say what to? The slogan was changed from stay at home to stay alert. It was a mess. Was that some kind of turning point for the Tory government in this prolonged coronavirus crisis? Well, I think really the situation for Boris Johnson and the Tories is going from bad to worse Mm. in reality. His approval ratings fell quite sharply after that speech, which was on the 10th of May, I think. And overall, more people disapproved of what he said than approved. They actually heard in that speech from the horse's mouth what a string of disasters the government strategy actually is. And it's clear that few people have got any confidence in his plans because they came across as contradictory, incomplete, downright ridiculous in parts. And the pro-big business agenda was very, very clear. Now, this is concerning matters of life and death, obviously. So the failings couldn't be more serious, really. And regarding that pro-big business agenda it was really overt because he declared that social distancing would be the case for family and friends, but not for people at work in reality, because the new rules are that people outside of work can't gather with more than one other person outside their household, but in work, social distancing isn't deemed as essential. So the government says, so, you know, they're saying it should only be done where possible. And he also told people last week to go back to work if they can't work from home without the public transport system being safe for that to happen. Mm. Of course, many people rely on the buses and the trains and can't use other means. And by the way, incredibly, the Department of Transport guidelines say that people from different households can share a car And you can't get a much more enclosed space than that, Mm. even though their advice says leave the window open. I mean, it's it's crazy, really. (laughs) But in any case, many workplaces 
hadn't had enough advance warning to put proper health and safety measures plans in place, even when workers get to work on whatever transport they use. Really, health and safety planning, careful health and safety planning, didn't seem to be part of Boris Johnson's agenda at all. When you analyse what he said, the message that came across was that the government wants the economy back on the up because of the panic that's taking place among those Tory big business backers of the government, basically, you know, really worried about the rapid economic decline that's taking place that Rishi Sunak was speaking of just in the last day or two. And also, this message of getting back to work is without the test track and trace programme being up and running yet. And there's science experts even saying that the level of infection is still too high for that to work properly, even when it is up and running. Mm. And they haven't introduced the quarantining measures yet for people coming from abroad. So there's all of that. But there was the pro-big business agenda, but also just the answering of the needs of the rich was very clear because the rich are allowed to have their cleaners and their nannies back. Mm. I read in one newspaper a letter from a parent who said that they could only visit their adult children now if those children put up a for sale sign in the front of their garden (laughs) because estate agents can function again or if they become their children's house cleaner (laughs) and that is true it shows the contortions the government is going to but one more important point before I conclude on this question Mm -hmm. is that Part of the PM's announcement that caused particular outrage was the aim of inviting all of the four, five and six-year-olds and the last year of primary, year six, back to school from the 1st of June. And it's absolutely clear to everybody that young children cannot socially distance, Mm. that they will take any viruses that they catch back to their families, back to their grandparents and so on. And it's not surprising that teachers see this as a blatant attempt to get the kids back to school so that their parents can get back to work again the pro big business agenda so really it's not surprising that people haven't got any confidence in any of this no and of course the last episode of this podcast we heard from martin powell davis who is a teacher and national education union activist going into a lot more detail on that developing campaign to stop the schools from reopening when it's so patently unsafe. We'll hear a little bit more about that later on. But it's worth noting that the government strategy clearly just hasn't succeeded so far in its stated aims, at least, of suppressing the spread of the virus. Over 60,000 people, according to Office for National Statistic Estimates, have died in the UK. But even if you go down from that to the government's official figures, which only really cover deaths that took place in hospitals... They're still the worst in Europe, and I think now the third worst in the world. We've just been pipped to the post by Brazil in second place. Yeah, that's all absolutely true. And the government has stopped providing international comparisons on the death toll in its briefings because they put the government and the Tories in such a bad light. Mm. It seems at the moment that virtually almost every day there are new revelations about the ineptitude, about the callousness... That's been going on at government level. There's too many to mention, but it was back in February, the 10th of February, that a leading science committee warned that sustained transmissions of the virus were probably taking place in communities across Britain. Yet 
even two weeks after that, the government was still saying that that wasn't the case, that they weren't, these transmissions weren't taking place. And then if you go into March, a month later, the Deputy Chief Medical Officer, Jenny Harris, was saying that testing for the virus in the community was not appropriate. Mm. And also in March, there's the scandal of the care home situation. It was still being left to care home bosses in March to decide whether to limit people entering care homes. And yet now we've got the situation where a quarter of the COVID deaths have been in care homes, that all the revelations that patients were being discharged from hospitals into the care homes until mid-April without even being tested for COVID, and that some of them even had symptoms of COVID and were being discharged from the hospitals into the care homes nevertheless. And of course, the care homes are overseen by local authorities. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing that the local authorities just simply don't have enough money. The government's given an amount to the local authorities. Yeah, 3.2 billion, which is an increase of about 3%. It's nothing. Yes, they're saying that they need four times that, in fact, to answer the extra needs of the COVID crisis, the local authorities. And and at the moment, there's a whole number of local authorities that are considering declaring themselves bankrupt because of the severe financial situation they're in. And, of course, you know, we, we argue in the Socialist Party that the local authorities should have all the funding given back to them that's been taken from them by successive governments over a long period of time. Mm. But also, when you look at the care home sector, that it should be nationalised, that it should be put into the public sector, into public ownership and run under the management and control of the workers in those homes and the people that they serve, rather than this appalling present situation where they're in the hands of private profiteers who super exploit the very low paid carers and they cut corners, of course, in the cost of running the homes because their motive is profit. And, you know, just to discuss these issues, it's without even at the moment going into all the failures regarding the terrible shortages of PPE, the shortages of the tests, which have rightly caused huge anger across Britain amongst ordinary people. And by the way, for the government, it's all about being seen to meet arbitrary targets, really, like with the number of tests per day, per week and so on. But then you hear that many people are waiting five days for their test result. Mm. And of course, they could spread the virus to a lot of people in that time. So the list of scandals is just enormous. Look, everything is a mess. None of the strategy is playing out the way that the government promised it would. It's not surprising that there are divisions appearing in the cabinet. There's splits at the top. There's infighting among the Tory ministers. Yes, there certainly is. And we don't know the half of what's going on, of course, with (laughs) the shenanigans at the top. But there's been plenty of reports in the media of infighting between cabinet ministers and cabinet ministers with civil servants and so on. I mean, the top civil servants there. And... They were clearly over the plans that Johnson put out to come out of lockdown, the ones that we've just been talking about, but arguing about many other issues, like, for instance, what to be done on the quarantine issue regarding arrivals coming from abroad, how many people will be exempt from them, 
from what countries and so on, because it's clear that some Tory ministers want minimal restrictions because of the impact it would have on international business if they go for a lot of restrictions. There's also been reports of division between Boris Johnson and his health secretary, Matt Hancock, with Hancock apparently accusing Johnson of not being fair on him in one exchange. (laughs) It sounds rather like a school playground, though I think that would be an insult to children, in fact. (laughs) There are also reports of anger at the top at decisions being made by quite a tight, small clique around the Prime Minister, rather than them being made by the full Cabinet. And then, you know, we could go on into wider circles, but we should definitely mention that beyond the Tory party, there have been widely publicised attacks by the likes of Nicola Sturgeon on the strategy that Johnson's put out. Nicola Sturgeon, who is, of course, the leader of the Scottish National Party, and she said that she wasn't going to apply, and she's not applying the stay alert message in Scotland. She said she doesn't even know what it means. And the devolved administrations in Wales and Northern Ireland are also doing their own thing. So there's a situation where the government is failing to keep a unified position across the UK, even in terms of the strategy on coming out of lockdown, Mm. the message that they're putting out. So these divisions are already emerging in various different fields. But one of those which is escalating is how is the national deficit going to be paid for because all these hundreds of billions of pounds have been promised by the Treasury thrown out to deal with the economic crisis and the medical demands, some of them, that the pandemic has thrown up. How are they going to be paid for? Where's that money coming from? Yeah, well, the crisis is still in full force. They're already arguing over what's going to happen in the future with the deficit that's building up, a massive deficit, of course. Some of them are already urging caution over any attempts towards inflicting more austerity. And I think the reason for that is twofold. One, because they fear going for another big bout of austerity will hold back economic growth because clearly they need people to be able to spend money. And if there's a massive onslaught of austerity again, then that limits what people can spend. But also they fear the reaction from the majority in society who, you know, people have had enough of austerity. We've had austerity for the last 10 years while the rich have got richer. And now look at where things are, another even worse economic crisis than happened 10, 12 years ago. Mm. So that wing of the capitalists thinks it's better to leave the debt on the state's books over, you know, what they say is over a long, long, long period in some form or other. And they sort of discuss the various forms that that could take. And then on the other side of the spectrum of views amongst them is a fear that the national debt will become too large and untenable. And of course, it's true, but actually at the moment, nobody knows quite how far that debt creation is going to go. And they fear that the financial institutions will react against it and push up interest rates, making that debt unsustainable. And we're seeing, I mean, there's quite a few kind of already saying, well, there's going to have to be another turn to austerity Mm. because of that. For instance, the former Tory Chancellor, George Osborne, who, of course, was a master architect of brutal austerity Mm -hmm. when he was Chancellor. He is staying true to form on that side of the fence. 
On the other hand, you've got Boris Johnson himself saying, oh, no, there's going to be no return to austerity and that he doesn't like the word austerity, but clearly the word isn't the issue and they can try to make the working class pay in other ways without making it appear directly as being the same austerity as before. And already, I mean, they can't help themselves. Already we've seen the government force Transport for London to increase the transport fares in London as a condition of giving some necessary money to keep the London transport system going. And clearly that is an attack on workers' living standards in London. You know, it's the start of some kind of surreptitious ways of clawing back money from ordinary people. So they're finding it very politically difficult to seriously propose at least some of them direct cuts which will affect the working class. They're looking for sneaky ways to do it. But are there going to be any financial demands put on the rich, do you think, to pay for this crisis? Well, I think there could be, yes. Obviously, there's various ways that that can be done through increasing corporation tax for the top companies in particular. They can increase the top rate of tax. They could use some kind of wealth tax. And all of those should be done, we would say, as socialists. But, of course, it's not a normal act of Tory governments to do those kinds of, you know, infringements, as they would see it, (laughs) by the rich. But then neither is it normal for Tory governments to nationalise the rail industry or (laughs) pay 80% of the wages of 7.5 million furloughed workers Mm. and so on. And I think, though we can say that any taxes on the rich by a Tory government would be at the end of the day with the purpose of defending the interests of the capitalist class, of defending the interests of big business and the rich in reality. Firstly, by trying to make it appear that all classes in society are paying for the crisis, trying to give that impression. And secondly, because they can really come up against a need to reduce the national debt, perhaps quite urgently at some point, And most of the money in society that can reduce it is in the hands of the super rich, of course. Mm. And they would howl with rage and threaten to take their money elsewhere. We've just had the Sunday Times rich list. And when you look at the huge amounts of money that they've got, that the wealthy have, I mean, you know, for instance, Richard Branson's on that list with over three billion pounds of wealth. You know, you can see that the government could take some money off them and they still stay super rich. There'd be no question about that as far as a Tory government goes. And by the way, London is the billionaire capital of the world, I noticed when I was reading about the rich list and changes that have taken place. Of course, a socialist society wouldn't allow such vast inequality to arise. It wouldn't allow the absolutely obscene pay of the executive committees of the top companies that's been taking place. It wouldn't allow the huge share bonanzas that, you know, they've been gaining from, the massive bonuses, Hmm. the huge enrichments from financial speculation that endanger the whole financial system. All of that is ultimately at the expense of society as a whole and at the expense of people on poverty pay who are struggling to survive. So going back to the attempt to force schools to reopen, which you mentioned earlier on, The attacks on the National Education Union, the NEU, in the right-wing media, notably the front pages on the Daily Mail, have been calling the unions callous, saying the union is preventing hero teachers from going back to work, when of course it is those teachers themselves who are responsible for organising to not go back to work because they know it's not safe. All these attacks in the right-wing media, 
they've been reaching a fever pitch recently. At the same time, Boris Johnson and the government have come out and said that, oh, actually, that wasn't a hard deadline the 1st of June, you know, maybe trying to soften the message a little bit. Is Johnson going to be forced to back off on this? There's clearly a very large number of teachers, other school staff and parents as well, who are rightly outraged at the plan to start a full reopening of schools in the way that the government's proposing. The National Education Union, the NEU, set five tests that need to be met first, and that includes a much lower number of COVID cases nationally, and that they want to see protection for the most vulnerable staff and the vulnerable members of the families of children. There's various measures that they're putting forward. And we've just seen in the last 24 hours or so that some leading scientists are now pitching in with arguments that a tracing system needs to be in place before schools should start the main go-back, the main return. Mm. Of course, some children have been going in throughout the lockdown, of course. We're talking about the bulk of the children going back into school. And really, these reports back up the teacher's case. There's more and more, in fact, backing up their case day by day. More and more people, and some councils as well now. And really, it's important that school staff and parents actually see the evidence that the government is using to make its proposals so that they can judge for themselves if the conditions for a safe return are met. And they need to be convinced before anything happens. But there's huge anger on it. On Monday night, there was a National Education Union meeting which was open to NEU members across the country. And there were reports that 16,000 logged into that to hear their leadership speakers and to be involved in taking a stand on the issue. Hmm. And I've also heard that as well as new members flooding into the NEU by thousands or tens of thousands, I think, there's been 500 new volunteers to be NEU reps as well in the schools. So... Clearly, you know, there's a really strong urge to resist the government on this issue. And I think what's important is that school staff aren't left to fight on their own, that collective decisions are made, Mm -hmm. which obviously all this is pointing towards in terms of the reaction of the union, staff acting together for the maximum strength. And that is, of course, what strikes the most fear into the government. It's not whether they win or lose this particular battle, whether the deadline gets pushed back past the 1st of June. But their biggest fear is workers building up confidence in their strength, in unity, in their power to determine their own workplace conditions. And we're seeing also other sectors of workers, the transport workers unions, for instance, are also resisting returning to an unsafe situation for them and the travelling public. And there's going to be lots of other battles around the country by other sections of workers as well. And if you want to see really what the arguments are, by the way, in a simple way about why the school's going back, whether schools should go back, the government is saying that state education should reopen. But what about the private schools? What is happening with the children of the ruling class? Well, Eton College is not going back until at least September. So clearly this is not about actually... The school's opening for the benefit of the kids. This is simply about childminding so that the working class and middle classes can go back to propping up profits, working and buying and so on. And just on this massive movement, which is starting to develop, by the way, around the teachers, of course, it's also the case that the parents are organising in many cases to 
withhold their children mm. from going back to school yep, in order yep. to keep them and their families and the staff safe. So they have an important supporting role to play in terms of the trade union campaign to keep the schools closed while it's not safe. Certainly in my own local area in Newham in East London, there was a meeting held by Louis Gaffaro, who's a local NEU branch secretary and a member of the Socialist Party just the other night. It was a Zoom meeting, had 100 parents in it, and 170 who couldn't even get into the meeting because the account didn't allow more than 100 on the call. But there's stories like this and stories like the NEU union meeting, mass meetings on Zoom happening all across the country. This is an enormous movement. could result in a great deal of pressure. Certainly, Socialist Party branches will be discussing how we can participate in this very important movement. But the point you were making there about trade unions in various different sectors starting to be a little bit more bullshit in the statements they're making about protecting their members. Is it the case that the union leaders on the whole are becoming more proactive in defending their members' interests than they have been recently? Yes, I think that's, that's clear. At the start of the pandemic, the union leaders seemed almost paralysed. They didn't move to challenge the government's decisions and actions. They suspended trade union meetings, even though they could take place online, and not, of course, face-to-face. But now there has been a marked change. They've clearly woken up to what trade union members are facing. It's not just health and safety issues, which we've touched on a bit in this discussion, Mm. but it's what workers are going to be faced with in other respects as well. In some cases, being asked to work longer hours to make up for lost production over the lockdown period, as far as the, the bosses are concerned. Some workplaces, their workers are being asked to work two shifts, you know, early shift and a late shift because of social distancing, which, of course, you know, will cause difficulties for some workers in terms of other aspects of their lives. Mm-hmm. And even with a stay at home situation, there's some bosses that are going to try to turn that into a permanent situation for a layer of workers, you know, to save office costs. Mm-hmm. And working at home can mean actually working harder for a lot of workers, as a lot of workers have discovered, than actually going into the workplace. So there's all sorts of issues. There's this issue of pay cuts as well that some bosses can try and impose. And then perhaps, you know, one of the most major issues, or even the most major issue, is going to be the issue of job losses, because that is becoming a major threat. We've already had the announcements of companies like British Airways and Rolls-Royce threatening thousands of jobs, and a very big increase in unemployment is being predicted. Of course, you know, as the government starts to withdraw the furloughing scheme and the help for self-employed and so on, Mm. and companies move to the post-virus situation and what they're going to do, and clearly some companies are using the whole situation as an excuse to make cutbacks and downsizing and so on that they wanted to do in an earlier period. So really, the trade union movement needs to be preparing and coordinating against all of these threats. And we're calling, the Socialist Party members in the trade unions are calling for the TUC, the Trade Union Congress, to have a kind of council of war type meeting to discuss how a combative stance can be adopted and carried out in the coming weeks and months. So this is really, you talked about a turning point earlier, this is, as a turning point, the end of the sort of national unity phase 
of the coronavirus crisis when there was a good deal of agreement, it seemed at least, within the Tory cabinet, between the different capitalist political parties, between the leaders of the different nations within the UK, even between the trade union leaders and the government, they all seemed to be on board with the same message and we criticised that at the time, but that has now fallen apart and it's forcing the trade union leaders to take more of a stand. Yes, I would say so, yeah, definitely. Well, moving on from the trade union leaders to the leader of the Labour Party, Sir Keir Starmer, what is the Labour Party doing? Is there any fight at all here? Well, first of all, I think it's clear that working class people badly need political representation in this period, as well as trade union representation. But Keir Starmer is tied in his ideology to keeping within the limits that are prescribed to him by capitalist interests. We're seeing him being praised by the right-wing media for being, as they see it, a voice of reason, someone the government can communicate with, work with to some extent. And it's clear that it's all in order for them to draw a firm line under the Jeremy Corbyn era and push the prospect of any real representation of working class interests back as far as they possibly can. And a party with that kind of leadership is clearly not going to be of use to working class people in the class battles that are coming as a direct result of this new titanic crisis in the system that we're seeing the onset of now. Mm. And I think it's absolutely clear that working class people, young people, realise that situation. You can see that there's no big turn towards the Labour Party (laughs) as there was under Jeremy Corbyn. No. Because they can see what Keir Starmer represents. It's, It's clear to people. So a discussion is needed in the workers' movement on how a workers' party can be built that really opposes the capitalist system, a system that has failed people, not just on the tragic health issue that we're seeing at the moment, but on delivering decent living standards. As we've touched on, the economic crisis is going to cause a massive increase in insecurity and misery for people. Mm. We need to discuss how a mass workers' party can be created that's so badly needed, which could then develop a programme for public ownership of the top corporations and socialist economic planning to provide the resources that everyone in society so badly needs. And I think that this crisis has really brought home very sharply what those resources, goods and services that are needed are. And it's also brought home who's providing them. It's the lowest paid workers in many cases Mm. who should have a wage that really reflects the value of their work, a wage that they could live comfortably on without having to worry on a day-to-day basis about money, about, you know, the struggle to get by, how to pay the rent, how to pay for basic needs. So that's the kind of party that we need, one that represents their interests. And just the very last point I'll make is that as the present crisis subsides, the heat of it subsides, the building of a political alternative won't have the same starting point that it had if you go back to the kind of era before Jeremy Corbyn, because it's also clear that the period of Corbynism hasn't passed without important observations being made and lessons being learnt. And I would urge all listeners of this podcast 
to read the next issue of the Socialist Party's journal, Socialism Today, because that journal is dedicated to focusing on that period, on the period of Corbynism, and the idea of that is to help prepare for the next period in drawing out the lessons that can be learnt. So that is really the point I wanted to finish on. So that's our monthly journal, Socialism Today. We also run a weekly newspaper, The Socialist. The next issue of Socialism Today comes out, is it this month, May? It's coming out soon, very soon. It's in production at the moment. And you can subscribe to that at socialismtoday.org. And as always, if you like what you've heard, recommend us to your friends, donate to help fund us, and if you agree, join the socialists. Judy, thank you very much. Thank you. Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party, the England and Wales section of the Committee for a Workers' International. Today we heard from Judy Beeson, and I'm James Ivans. This episode was edited by Nick Hart. You can find further reading in the notes in your podcast app and at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash podcast. If you want to get in touch, email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk. Do you agree with the policies and actions the Socialist Party is fighting for? We need you. Send us your details at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash join. What if I live outside England and Wales and want to join the fight for socialism in my country? Contact the Committee for a Workers International by visiting socialistworld.net. Socialism the Podcast has no wealthy backers. Help us take the fight to big business. You can make a regular donation or a one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash donate. Till next time, solidarity.